0: Amen. You know, many things in life, they seem very final, very finite, what's done is done, or as that old Southern saying is, it is what it is. And there's one thing that seems more finalized than others in life, and that's death. You know, death touches all of us in one way or another. Some of us, we feel like we've had death touch us closer than we would like to with the loss of a loved one, a friend, a family member, a spouse, maybe even, God forbid, our own child. And death's a horrible thing. What makes death so hard is that finality. It's over. There's no turning back from that. And a graveyard or a cemetery is representative of all the memories of those people who've gone before us in death. And death takes us all. And if you could, in in your mind, go with those first followers of Jesus in the first century of how they must have been feeling on this day over 2,000 years ago, before they went to that tomb, is they had been touched by death. They had been sorrowful. They had felt like there was no hope to be found. Their Lord, their master, their teacher, their friend, their confidant, the one that they had given up all things to follow after dead, gone. Yet, on this day, over 2,000 years ago in history, we celebrate, we gather as the body of believers, as the church with Christians all over the world to celebrate that it's not always what is is what is. It's not over. That this day in history, death did not have the final say. That he got back up that Jesus is, sits in a different category than all others in history. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? Because he's the only one to resurrect, to get back up, never to lay back down again. But you say, well, Jesus, didn't he heal people back from the dead? Like as a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John and we looked at Lazarus multiple weeks in his story in John chapter 11, where Jesus raised him back from the dead when he'd been gone for four days. he was dead and jesus raised him from the dead well that's simply a resuscitation because lazarus would die again and all others that jesus brought back from the dead would die again all other religious religious leaders in history they would all die what separates jesus what makes jesus different is he got back up never to go down again he resurrected And on that day in history, when we have it recorded like John presents it in John chapter 20, if you have a copy of God's word or you feel like you can be trusted with your phone, we're gonna be in John chapter 20 verses. yeah, you're laughing. You're like, ah, yep, that's had to throw that in there. We're gonna be in the first 18 verses this morning. And John celebrates the power of Jesus that he has like no other to conquer death and hell. We celebrate this day and he records it going about like this, verse one of John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We're gonna stop right there. The first question we have to ask is if you're curious about the scriptures is who is this Mary Magdalene? Like who is she? What's her story? Why is it important that John includes that, that she is the one who is going to the tomb, that there's others with her, but John likes to highlight her. Well, Mary is her name. Magdala is the town that she's from. So we have her name in scriptures as Mary Magdalene. And she's from a fishing town off the sea of Galilee called Magdala. And this is her name. This is where she's from. But that doesn't tell us much about who she is. Like, what's her story? Like, if you were having a cup of coffee or eating breakfast with Mary, you would want to know some more. Like, tell me where you're from. What was your life like? And we don't get that here. But we do get a window into what her life was like before she met Jesus in the gospel of Luke. I just wanna take you to two simple verses in Luke eight, verses one and two to get you a window into her story. Verse one of Luke eight says this, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the 12 were with him, that's him is Jesus. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. So, we have two words that we need to zero in on, or two phrases rather. Evil spirits, that's demons or enemies of God, from the enemy, not of God, not good things to have seven demons in you, if you didn't know that. And infirmities, that's simply physical sickness. So, to say that Mary's story starts off pretty ugly is the understatement of the day. Seven demons. Seven demons. Y'all, y'all got a few kids, but she had seven demons in in her body. And what would that mean for her to have physical sickness and seven demons in her culture? Mary was suffering in this culture, both physically and psychologically, most likely. That her problem was not just an issue that they dealt with and kind of hid her away in her room, but... This mostly like was a death sentence because if you were suffering both physically and psychologically from all these, you were ostracized from your family, your community, your friends, and you were left to die a miserable death all alone. That everyone in her life most likely had abandoned her, had left her to die a miserable death all by herself. And most likely the worst part in this context for Mary, the worst thing was is that everyone, yeah, they gave up on her. But most likely if you're in her shoes and felt all abandoned, all alone, like your life isn't worth living, most likely Mary had lost all hope in herself. And we've all been in a similar situation at some point in our life, like we have no hope. What are we going to do? Until Mary met Jesus And he healed her. Genuine healing because Luke tells us that he cast those demons out. So in Mary's life, she had not only experienced his power from afar, but it had touched her close. She had experienced personally the power that Jesus had to overcome demons, sickness, and make her have a family when she didn't have a family, to give her hope when all hope had seemed lost, to give her a purpose when she felt like she had none. Mary had experienced hope from Jesus like nobody else was able to give her in her life and bring a real tangible solution in her life. So for her and all the other followers of Jesus in this moment, it felt like the worst moment of all because the one who had brought her hope is dead. The one who had brought her redemption, rescue is gone. So she goes to, to grieve at the tomb and, and rightly so. But John tells us that Mary also had Peter and John with her on the way. And, and he records the story like this. John 2, I'm gonna stop at verse 10 this, this time. So follow along in the narrative like this. It says, so she saw the tomb have, the stone had been to, taken away. That's verse one. So, verse two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and The face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up and placed by itself. Then the other disciple whom had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So in this context, we have Mary, Peter and John. John calls himself in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John's not being arrogant. He's practicing what first century writers would call authorship humility, where he's not willing to identify himself so that people don't get distracted by how his close proximity to Jesus, but rather he wants you to be abundantly clear who this writing is all about. So that's why all throughout John's gospel and his writings, he'll simply refer to himself the one Jesus loved. And sometimes he gets really cheeky about it and says the one Jesus loves the most. And we know uh, from scholars that John is most likely the youngest disciple and Peter is the oldest. So you have here what is a foot race with the the old blood and the young blood. And uh, apparently those young bones paid off because he outlegged Peter to the tomb. And we're told when he gets there, he doesn't go on in. But Peter huffing and puffing up the rear, he finally gets to the tomb and, and goes in. And when he goes in, he sees that the face cloth, that, which they would use to traditionally wrap Jewish uh, bodies' heads, was folded up, just like any good guest would fold up their sheets and leave it better than they found it. Because the tomb wasn't Jesus's, he was just borrowing it, because he was going to get back up and never use it again, so he folded his sheets, if you will. And so Peter goes in and sees the scene, and John follows in after him. But John records that something happened in his heart when he saw the evidence that was presented to him. That's why I love John's gospel. He's really clear when he doesn't get it. And look at verse nine. This is what it says in verse nine. For yet, they did not understand. They didn't get it yet. But he also wants to highlight in verse eight, go back to verse eight for us, that he believed. He says, something happened in me that I can't understand but I've got this belief within me that's telling me that there's something else to this story, but I don't really get it yet. That John articulates for us what many of us have felt and experienced when it comes to faith. That we don't get it all yet, but we, we don't understand it, but we, we believe. And this is not to say that this is enough for John, but that we're all in different stages of faith called not to just to believe it once and be done with our lives, but we're all called to grow deeper in our faith. It's one of our values as a church. We grow deeper, that we all have realized that we have not arrived when it's came to our faith, that we all have a next step, if you will. And John highlights this for us in these two verses that he believed, but he didn't fully understand yet that this is what had to happen. And then for Peter and John, apparently that was enough for them. They'd seen what they needed to see, and they went on home. They headed back to the house. But for Mary, this isn't enough. For some reason, this isn't enough for Mary because she stays back. Put yourself in Mary's shoes for a second. If everything in your gut is telling you they took him, they took away his body. Imagine someone that you love, that you laid them to rest and you go and visit their graveside one, one year, one afternoon, whatever the case should be, a few days after their passing, And you realize the spot that they were buried was dug up. There was no evidence of them being there. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's good. Head on back. No, you would be like, I got to ask some questions. I got to find out where have they taken him? So she hangs back. She's curious. She's looking around like, where have they taken my Lord? She even has a conversation with two angels asking the exact same question. Where did you take him? Did you take him somewhere? She's curious in her gut. It tells her that there's more to the story. And so she hangs back. And after having this conversation with these two angels, the scripture tells us that she turns around and actually has an encounter with the risen Jesus. Verse 14, it says, and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking, supposing him to be the gardener? Now, I'll stop the verse right there on the screens because the question that I want to ask is in this moment with John writing this account, why does he care to include that she thought he was the gardener? That he thought she was, that she thought he was the gardener. Well, I want to propose to you that John has already put in this theme of garden in this section of his gospel. And for a first century reader, they wouldn't have chapters and verses. The only way to draw your attention to something by was was using what they call repetition, just over and over again, dripping this theme in. And I wanna show you. In verse, chapter 18 of John chapter or at chapter 18, verse one in John's gospel, when Jesus is betrayed, he says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went with them out to the disciples across the book of the Kedron, where there was a garden. He highlights this garden. And the next time he uses it is in chapter 19. After Jesus has been crucified, he, he highlights the location of the crucifixion. He says, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been lain yet. So John tells us for whatever reason that Jesus was betrayed in a garden, crucified in a garden, laid to rest in a gardener. And then for some crazy reason, when he resurrected in a garden, the lady mistaken him for the gardener. What is going on here? Well, let me tell you, something's happening in a garden. And for a first century reader, what would have been drawn in their mind in this creative writing was the first garden. For Jewish readers to read this gospel account, they would brought to their mind the first garden where God created the world, all things good. The only thing was not good was man was alone. So he made a counterpart woman with the man. And made it, called it very good and made them, gave them two commands, work and keep this garden. Anybody got a garden at home? Sounds like something you do, right? Work and keep the garden. Keep it up. Keep the weeds out. Keep the garden. So Adam could, and Eve could easily be called the first gardeners. They're called to work and to keep the garden. They're told one thing they can't do. Don't eat from one specific tree. It's God's command. But any other tree, you can have your free range as you're gardening well. There's all this abundance for you to enjoy. But one thing you're not supposed to do. And the one thing they were called not to do, Adam and Eve did do, and that ushered in sin and they were cast out of the garden. So because of Adam's sin, death are linked. Sin and death are linked. Because of the sin of Adam, sin and death are now tethered together in this way. Adam ushers in sin and death and God made a promise to the evil one in Genesis chapter three. God made a very specific promise. That same evil one who held power over Mary is given this promise by God the Father when he's speaking in the garden. Genesis 3.15 says this, and I, that's God speaking, will put enmity, or that word also means strife, conflict between you and that you is the evil one. You and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Notice this is plural language here, that there will be this conflict between those who are God's and those who are the enemies. There's this issue, there's this conflict. But notice this shift after the semicolon and he, singular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush. Your head. So the fact is, in this language and using the language of another New Testament writer, Paul, Jesus is our better Adam, doing what that first Adam could not do and did not do, which was follow God's law perfectly, live the life that he was called to live, and die the death in his place. So you could say this, that that first Easter, that the cross struck Jesus. The language of Genesis bruised his heel, but the empty tomb crushed Satan. The empty tomb crushed Satan. And now the power that Jesus holds is over the enemy to defeat both sin, death, and hell. And Paul writes it like this in 1 Corinthians 15:22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That all who turn in repentance and faith be made alive because of what that new Adam, that better gardener did on our behalf. That Adam, if we're either in Adam or in Christ, the New Testament says. That's our options, in Adam or in Christ. And if we're in Adam, sin and death still reign over us. But if we're in Christ, it's where forgiveness and life live. And what that means is that Christ, if you have turned to him in repentance and faith, he not only rescues you for eternity but there is a genuine life now that he invites us into that there's this power that the resurrection has not just for one day but for today that he can rescue from areas of our lives that are falling apart he can restore things that were once broken because of sin and death like your marriage that's falling apart your future that you can't get or see pain that you can't get over an addiction you can't seem to break In the same way that you've been doing the same things over again, searching for healing in new places. The question that the angel asked Mary, whom are you looking for? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What is the solution that you're looking for in your life? Where do I look for healing, hope, comfort in my life? Because where Mary found herself on that day was at the tomb along with those disciples. They were looking for their Lord. They went there grieving, but Mary goes back hopeful because she encounters a risen Jesus that has the power not only to save us for one day, but for today, to offer us new life, new hope, new healing right now. And I know what you're thinking. This sounds way too good to be true. That yeah, I get that, hey, I can be, have fire insurance so I don't go to hell. I can go to heaven. That's good. That's a good path. But talking about right now, resurrection, what does that mean? Well, there's three things that I wanna highlight as we begin to wind down. Three things that the power of the resurrection can have in our lives today. That sin's power is now broken. We're saved to new life now. And we're saved for forever. Let's break these down together. The first one, sin's power is now broken broken. If you're in Christ and not in Adam, we are no longer a slave to our sin. That through Jesus, we have the power in us because of his power to overcome sin, to walk in a different direction. Now, this doesn't mean sin doesn't exist in our lives because the reality is, is that sin and death are still a part of our world. And we had the effects of it every day in our life in other people's lives that we love But the reality is, is because of Jesus, it no longer has the final say. It no longer rules and governs over our lives, that we're called to live differently. But the problem is, is many of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, don't exercise that. That we have been taught this, I'm good and I've got my ticket punched for heaven and I continue in my life forever. But Christ calls us to live differently, not in sin's power, but in a very different way of living. It's like this. Most of us probably have all went through high school. Imagine you played varsity football or you were a varsity cheerleader or something like that. You graduated, you're in college. First game, freshman year of college, you go back to high school, go back in the locker room, put the jersey on, you suit up you ready to go. Put me in, coach. That's probably how you feel. But people would look at you and say, what in the world are you doing here? You don't belong here anymore. Same is true if we are no longer in Adam, but are now in Christ. There are things that used to be a part of our lives and used to govern our lives that no longer belong there, no longer belong reigning over us, ruling over us, or even being a part of our lives. And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about the do's and don'ts, the checklist. I'm talking about the root of our lives being plunged into Christ and he is the one who governs our lives. I'm not talking about moralism. I'm talking about a grace-filled life. I'm talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about freedom that we are supposed to experience in Christ and learn how to live that way. It's a learning to live that way. It's not a flip of a light switch. It's a process of being governed by the Holy Spirit to live as those called children of God. And if you've experienced that in your life, it's a process. It's not an arrival destination. And the problem is, is we've been sold this bill of goods of just a punch your ticket and you're good for one day. But the reality is the invitation for Jesus and his followers is to get that follow him, not simply just believe and be good for one day, but follow him. That's why when we read this phrase that sin's power is now broken, you're like, yeah, but do you know what is my life is like right now? Yeah, I get it. But the reality is, is that sin's power is broken and no longer has the final say. And we have to learn to get those things out of our lives, out of even our bodies and our rhythms and learn a new way to follow Jesus. That's why the early followers of Jesus were just called followers of the way. It was a way they lived their lives. And that's the invitation because number two, we're saved to new life now. We're saved to live in this way that Christ can change your here and now. He came to give us life and life to the full as he says in John ten ten. Many of us, we don't experience that and we're like, oh, one day it's gonna be good. But his early followers had hope that day, that Mary's life was changed forever, that John had something inside of him that was different. He couldn't explain it, but he experienced it. And he spent the rest of his life growing into it. That John, at the ripe age of 90, writes the book of Revelation, and explains his vision of Jesus and what it was like to be by his side constantly. And you're like, yeah, but how does, how does Jesus... Do that. Like, I don't understand that. I think that's part of the point. But think of a garden. If you're a gardener and you have these beautiful flowers, when the seasons change and you want new life in that garden, do you just start watering all that dead grass? No, you've got to get the old out in the new in. And that's what the Spirit's work in our life is like. He gets the old out. He got, he's got to get those dead things out of our life that no longer belong in this garden and put new life in. That's why the Old Testament prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk about Christ taking, doing heart surgery on us, getting the heart of stone out and the heart of flesh put in. That it's new life, it's, it's transplant, it's not just uh, patch up work. That Christ's resurrection didn't just save us from hell but to something better here and now, that we're not only saved from sin and death, but to new life and a new way of living. And Mary had experienced that power in her life. John 20, the last encounter with her, verse 16 through 18, it says this, that Jesus said to her, Mary. You see, she, she still didn't understand who he was or what was happening. She's still thinking, oh, he's the gardener. But he said her name. And there's people in your life right now that if they say your name in a certain way, you know exactly who it is. And for Mary, when he said those words, she perked up. She turned around. She's like, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. And she exclaimed this Aramaic phrase, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. Do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went, announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And And that he had said these things to her. So Mary, who had been left by everyone in her life, now had hope that came from Jesus, not just that one encounter, but now he got back up and everything has now changed. And she was the one that Jesus revealed himself to her first. And, and those early followers that she was just one who was redeemed, but now she was the one who was sent. That she was now commissioned to be the life bringer to, to those early followers of Jesus. That the one who had been sent by God, the father Jesus, is now sending her. That the sent one has now been the sending one. That Jesus is sending Mary. They're sent. All the disciples, they're sent because their life has been changed. And it gets better because it's not just this life here, but it's also life forever. Number three, the power of the resurrection is we are saved for forever. Better than just life that can get better on this earth, but life forever. That the reality is that sin and death have a very real part of our lives and our bodies today and every day. Sin affects every relationship we have. We do things we don't wanna do that we wish we could kick and it affects our relationship with God. We circle back around, but that's what grace is about. It affects our relationships with others. It affects our world that's decaying. It affects our bodies as they break down. But the hope of Jesus is that he comes to renew and restore all things to make them new. And he will, he makes that promise. He promised that he would come once and he did it and he promised he's coming again. That we have hope genuine hope, a new message that no other religion on the planet or have ever existed has, that we don't have just a religion. We have a relationship with the one who did what he said, that our God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. He did what he said he came to do, and he said, I'm coming back. We have hope. No matter how much devastation and heartache seem to be a part of your story right now, you can have hope hope and we're going to respond to that we're getting ready to sing a few more songs and reflect on the fact that we do have hope but we realize as the size of this room the chances are that some of you may not have hope and we want to extend that to you that if you are a follower of Jesus and, and you just have some areas of your life that you want somebody to cover in prayer we're going to have a prayer team down front that would love to pray with you and for you no matter what it is just tell them what it is tell them nothing whatever the case may be just say pray for me and they would love the opportunity to pray for you but if you've never experienced that hope that Jesus is or you're not really sure what is this all about after the service there'll be some of us um at the welcome desk or just anybody with an orange tag on that you can come and talk to because the reality is is that sin and death have the opportunity no longer to have power over your life and your story forever That's the hope that Jesus brings. And we're gonna sing and celebrate that fact that he is risen, risen indeed. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for who you are and the fact that you did everything you promised to do and you offer us so much more, more to come. That you offer us life to the full right now, not only just in eternity's sake, but also in forever's sake that you offer us what no one else can offer, genuine hope to redeem our stories and our eternity. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a promise-keeping God that promises to handle sin and death once and for all, and you did it. And in the meantime, in the in-between, we look to follow you to grow deeper in our faith, to pursue you with everything we are. And Holy Spirit, right now, we pray over those in this room who are wrestling with that belief. Like John, in the early of our passage of, I feel it, I'm experiencing it, but I can't explain it. God, would you, with the power of your Holy Spirit, give clarity because you are the God of clarity. You are the God of hope and life. You are not the God of confusion. God, so if anyone is confused this room, I pray that they would have the boldness to, seek prayer and pursue after you and that you would more clearly reveal yourself to them. God, that you would have your will and your way in this moment and that only you can get the honor and the credit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and uh, sing with us?